hello and hello everybody. Welcome back for another episode. If not now, when? And today, oh my God, I'm so excited to welcome today's special guest, Bobby Tan. And let me tell you a little bit about Bobby. Uh, first of all, he is engineer by training, yet commercial and product leader by passion. He is a Silicon Valley alumni working with so many tech giants that we all know and love, like Apple, Amazon, Intel, and just name a few. He also traveled all around the world, you know, with US, Europe, Australia, India, and China. Wow. In addition, wow, one thing that you did not know about Bobby by looking at him, such a wonderful guy, he also is an actor featured in a commercial such as Dove for Men or Chelsea Football Club. Who would thought? Wow. He also sing a song on the stage with Taylor Swift. Oh my goodness. I would never imagine that. So today, Bobby, he's a co-founder and chief product officer at Mana, a tech startup with a passion to really create a world where everybody can make a living by sharing their passion. With that, everybody, I am so, so, so excited. Thank you so much, Bobby, for joining us and welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Wen. Very excited to be here. Amazing. So, Bobby, tell us how does all this magic that get started? I think a part of it is sheer coincidence and luck, um, and uh, <laughs> and probably layered on with a lot of hard work along the way as well. Um, so, uh, just to give some context for me, you know, I'm a first generation immigrant. Um, you know, family moved to America when I was very young. Gave up a relatively good lifestyle in China. Um, you know, we, we weren't extremely wealthy, but we definitely were doing very well for ourselves. But when you pick up and move to another country, uh, essentially you give up everything that you have in that country and even immigration costs are very expensive. So imagine pouring yeah. your life savings into, you know, moving to America to pursue a better life, uh, mm -hmm. if not for yourself, but for, you know, your future generations to come. So that's how I got, uh, I guess you could say, established in America. Um, I, I would call myself uh, or affiliate myself more truly as an American, um, not only by, I guess, citizenship, but more so by just culture, by um, you know, the, the ideals that I hold in life as well. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, th this might be years and years of growing up and living in America, but um, you know, taking the opportunities that you're given in life and making the most out of it, um, as well as taking the challenges that you're given in life and making the most out of it. So uh, for me, you know, grew up uh, in a very humble life, as you could say, uh, you know, very working class. Um, I, you know, I got started, I guess you could say in the business, in the business world uh, <laughs> when I got a pack of Pokemon cards for uh, a gift. And, wow. you know, I realized, I think I was about maybe age six or seven, that there is an arbitrage opportunity. Obviously, it wasn't called that in my, you know, childish mind, but there was an, uh, an opportunity there where if I manage to resell cards um, that I get out of a pack, I can not only make a profit, but I can multiply the cards. Uh, from it, so it's it's uh, you know the old parable of you know taking talents and turning one into ten. Um, essentially, I didn't know about it at the time, but that's essentially what I was trying to do. Is I was trying to turn a pack of cards uh, into multiples. Um, it was around the time that eBay was kind of getting new and off the ground. Um, so mm -hmm. 
um, you know, I really experiment with just, you know, selling local car uh, cards locally at the shops um, and doing that. Uh, and then uh, around that, around a few years later, uh, this new trend called Yu-Gi-Oh came out. And that yes. essentially exploded this uh, trading card scene. So I realized there's a really big market in um, buying and selling uh, collectible cards um, more so than ever before. You know, it used to be baseball cards or basketball cards, but um, you know, this was the original uh, NFT, if you will, <laughs> that I was playing with. And so, you know, as a kid, I was maybe maybe making a hundred bucks uh, a month, um, which uh you know at that time um in, in the in current day time it's it's not much at all you know it's less than the day's earnings for, for some people and uh, at that time it was a lot for a kid uh so mm -hmm. um i was doing that essentially for my video game money for my spare cash mm -hmm. um and just trying to build up what i can um you know i had a paper ledger of how much i was taking in and um, putting out as well um so th i think that was kind of the initial um exposure into the business world for me was taking uh you know, a little tiny seed and trying to turn that into something a lot bigger um you know i can't say i became a millionaire uh, uh because of it but uh you know it was it, it was it would teach me some good lessons about you know what mm -hmm. Um, supply and demand looks like what true value of something looks like and even negotiation skills when you're trying to trade something uh, trade it up if you will wow in such a young age you have such an entrepreneurial mindset that's incredible Bobby and I'm curious yeah. that experience kind of influence who you are today that sounds so much fun but yet really is something that really beginning of your entrepreneur journey right yeah I think I think throughout that time frame um, you know I I kept um, finding good things to uh, buy and resell. And so there were even things like gift cards. I realized I could make a 10% profit on these gift cards that weren't sold elsewhere around the world. Um, and I was doing this all throughout high school. Uh, you know, I would buy the gift cards locally, mail them, uh, and even net fees, you know, I could rake in, let's say 10 bucks per gift card, per $50 gift card. And it's, so I just slowly racked up, um, profit from there. Um, but this, uh, helped transition me into, um, a couple of avenues. So uh, I'll go a little bit deeper into this child acting thing. It, it's something that I was doing uh, completely isolated <laughs> at, the, at the time. But what this meant was it meant I still didn't have anything good on my resume. I couldn't get a job anywhere. So right out of high school, no one would hire me. Um, I was trying to apply for every retail shop out there. You know, this included things like GameStop or, um, you know, the, the local movie theater, Sears, Kohl's. Uh, I went to the shopping center and applied at every single store and no one hired me out of high school. Uh, you know, I thought on paper, at least I was going to be somewhat hireable. Um, you know, I had pretty decent grades uh, for a high schooler, pretty okay resume, <laughs> um, but no one take a chance. And so I found a job um, through a flyer that was left on my car after watching a movie. Um, and so this flyer said part-time work for students, um, you know, pays, I think it was like sixteen fifty an hour, um, roughly, I mean, wage. And so I went to this uh, uh, office, I interviewed, I got the job. Um, and then someone told me, hey, I think this job looks a little bit sketchy. <laughs> and so I looked online for this job, uh, what people were saying about this job. And I was like, you know what? People are saying a lot of things about it. Uh, but I have no other choice. Let's just give it a shot. And so what the con the context of this job is uh, you have to sell knives. So like Cutco Cutlery. Um, and throughout 
college. Um, I think for most Americans, they'll know someone who's sold Cutco Cutler before. Uh, and, you know, I was like, selling knives, I've never done anything like this. I've never heard of anything like this before, right? So it was more or less a direct sales role. Um, you know, you get your own leads, you pitch, they help you pitch, um, they equip you with um, skills. I was pretty bad at it. Uh, you know, I knew how to hustle in, in a sense that I, I could find market opportunities and, you know, find where I can make profit. But I wasn't very good at pitching. Uh, I had no interpersonal skills at all. So it was a very tough job for me. Um, I had friends who, you know, they came from a lot wealthier networks, I guess you could say. Um, so I, uh, I grew up in a very Mormon town and uh, all the sales reps who are Mormon <laughs> got so many sales. They, they made like a thousand bucks a day sometimes just, you know, selling uh, products. And for me, I would get, I would be lucky to even make a hundred a day, if not 50 a day. Um, and so I was absolutely terrible at it. Um, but uh, what I learned from that was, hey, this is a craft, and that if I'm gonna, you know, actually spend my time doing this, I can't keep, uh, you know, making less than minimum wage sometimes, just uh, trying to, uh, um, you know, make a sale. So, you know, my my first summer doing it, I probably, you know, raked in maybe a thousand or two thousand bucks um, net net net, uh, which wasn't great going into college where your tuition is about twenty five thousand a year. Uh, so, uh, I really took that, um, experience, um, and, you know, I thought, Hey, you know, it's something that is not really what I'm really good at, but there is something here that I can learn from it. So segue into my first summer between uh, freshman year and, um, sophomore year, I thought, Hey, maybe I'll, I'll find another job. Uh, you know, I have this cool knife job I can put on my CV. No one hired me again. Um, you know? I had friends in my consulting club who were getting, you know, internships at Deloitte and all these big name companies. Uh, no one wanted to take a chance on this guy who only has child acting and um, a knife selling job on his resume, uh, despite having, you know, a pretty good uh, university on his resume and everything else. But uh, no one take a chance. So I was like, okay, I'll go back to selling knives. My first week uh, going back and selling knives that summer, I was terrible. I made zero sales in my first uh, two weeks. And what that means is essentially I probably made 200 bucks from um, just like base level commission. Um, not, not even commission, just base level pay. Uh, so I didn't cover gas or anything. And uh, I was like, oh, great. It's going to be a very rough summer. Uh, my spending money is, you know, essentially what I got in scholarships um, or whatever is left of that. And so I really took that uh, terrible experience and, re and really want to dig deep into, okay, why is this happening? Um, and someone, I think just through passing was like, Hey, I listened to some great talks, uh, while I go to my sales calls and it helps prepare me, um, for those, uh, you know, um, essentially those sales calls or those client meetings. And so I realized, Oh wow, there's a big library, all these talks and people just, you know, sharing their experience, how they pitch a lot better. And so my, uh, you know, I got on the road again, I started playing things from my iPod at the time, um, because, you know, that, that was the technology at the time. So played through one of these talks and I realized, oh, you know, there's some decent stuff in here. Let's try it out in my next uh, sales meeting. Uh, and right then and there, you know, they, they bought something. It wasn't big. It was like maybe uh, an order that led to, I'd say like a hundred bucks for the commission, which was more than I was making before. Uh, and then I realized, okay, maybe I can keep, keep this going. Maybe there's something that I can actually learn from this. So it snowballed very quickly um, where I was just cramming in all these different talks um, and then started researching, hey, how do you actually do a proper sales pitch? 
mm-hmm. um, especially with the products. And I realized then there it was before my flaw was I was reading off a script. Um, you know, I was just treating it as like a job. Um, and then the, what I realized was this is a real craft that you need to get good at. Uh, you know, you're not simply just there to speak something verbatim. You actually need to show expertise in the product that you're talking about. You need to mm-hmm. use the product, understand it, and understand why people would want it beyond just re- you reading off the script. Uh, and that summer, I broke the summer record uh, for sales. Um, so I'm skipping maybe like two months in advance. And what turned, you know, what was essentially a maybe a 1,000 a month commission, if I was lucky, uh, quickly escalated to 10,000 a month plus. And what it took was a lot of hard work. I was probably working about 80 hours a week uh, because I was constantly on the road visiting clients um, you know, from all over Southern California. So I was driving from appointment to appointment. Sometimes it'd take an hour or two just to drive to appointment. But um, you know, if you invest that time, um, and you get a $2,000 check out of it because you made a big sale. You know, that, that's when it becomes worthwhile. And my closing ratio went from like 5% up to 95%. Um, wow. So, and, and that all took um, essentially a way, it took me, you know, putting in the hard work, understanding the product in and out, uh, understanding what was flawed with how I was doing things. So being very self-critical about, okay, how could I have approached this better? It took a lot of different delivery methods. So I realized instead of me trying to sell the product, I can get other customers who own the product to write testimonials. So it's these best known methods that were in industry that aren't really standard template as a new sales rep that I Mm -hmm. learned that I realized, okay, if I apply that to uh, what I do and if I develop my own methods based on, you know, the best practice I've seen so far, you know, it becomes really my own formula to almost always sell uh, on each appointment. Um, and so that quickly became essentially how I paid off for my entire college tuition. Um, wow. Yeah. And so, you know, I think the learning experience is going into something like this uh, with any job, you could say, there's always naysayers who say, hey, you know, this is a, you know, not for everyone. Um, you know, sales is a terrible thing. Uh, no one's going to buy anything. Um, what I quickly realized is, you know, it's, it's all mental. It's all attitude. Um, you're selling something that's a best in class product. Um, and you, as long as you have product conviction, that essentially helps determine if you're going to sell anything or not. Um, and, uh, what I realized through that is, you know, it's all, it's not just mental, but you have to have conviction in what you're doing, Mm -hmm. uh, true belief in what you're doing. Uh, and then the rest is really easy. If you're, if you know you're, you know, selling a quality thing, if you're, you know, convincing something that, hey, this is actually something that's going to be good for you, uh, rather than reading off a script, if you truly believe it, uh, if you know everything about the product that makes it good, um, that's what comes in the hand. Um, and then finally, being able to deal with rejection has been something that uh, has really helped mold me into who I am today. So imagine someone who's rejected 95% of the time, right? <laughs> I, I'm so used to getting no's now. So for example, when I talk to VCs and they say, oh, no, you know, we'll pass. Like, it, it doesn't hit me emotionally anymore. Um, because if you have full conviction of what you're doing um, and the product that you are building, it, you know, it, it becomes a different mentality. Uh, and, you know, I, I believe there's probably 5 to 10% of the population who are always going to say no to whatever you say. You might have the best logical or emotional pitch, but there's always going to be people that say no. But if you get one no, um, you know, that means the next 19 are going to be yeses. Um, and that's how I kind of approached it from, uh, you know, when I was at the peak of my sales game was, hey, if someone says no, I'm like, great, I can, I can move on. I can you know, move to my next 19 yeses. 
Um, and you know, that's really carried forth, um, you know, whether it be through, uh, you know, my poor dating track record um, or <laughs> poor, uh, you know, um, job application record of, you know, getting so many rejections. Um, all it takes is, uh, you know, that one yes to make all the difference. So what does this lead to? Yeah, you know, it helped me pay off college um, very healthily. Uh, I was able to afford to study abroad, um, you know, uh, get a car. I should have just put it all into like Bitcoin that time or something. I, I'd be a uh, filthy rich right now, but you know, <laughs> so, so the saying goes, you know, like, yeah, hindsight's 2020. Um, so for me, what this meant was, okay, now I'm applying for jobs. I have a much better CV. Uh, you know, I, I can say, Hey, I took a really crummy job situation and I turned it into a very fruitful, um, you know, uh, job experience, income driver, whatever you go on caught. So, uh, with all this and engineering and uh, economics background. So I, I walk up to the uh, recruiter at the job fair. It's an engineering job fair. Uh, and I walk up to the Intel recruiter and I go in there with so much confidence about myself, <laughs> uh, much different than before. And I'd say, Hey, I'm X, Y, and Z, you know, I'm, I'm an engineer, but I have a sales background or sales background and uh, I'm really passionate about business uh, things, but I really just, just want to work in, uh, you know, tech, you know, we're studying uh, semiconductors right now. And, it, you know, this really interests me. So she could tell right away that it was a lot different of a pitch than your typical, you know, uh, I guess, engineering candidate. Right. Mm -hmm. And it took a chance on me. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I landed a position at, at Intel. Um, I spent two different summers with them. Uh, one, uh, when I was still going to uni as well. And, uh, you know, really was able to, you know, put my full effort into my time there and, you know, met some really great people that I still keep in touch with these days. Um, and that role, uh, you know, expanded into a full-time position after university as well. Got to work with some really cool people on the uh, Dell team. Um, so it was around the time that Dell went from a public company to a private company. So really uh, cool business uh, uh, transitions that I was um, helping them with. So uh, around the that time um, was when Apple was kind of just really hitting the scene it was right after steve jobs died um and it was kind of like a transitional period uh and you know i was really passionate about the product and so for me i was like okay how do i get a job there you know I, it's cool that you know i'm working at this company that took a chance on me really great people um you know really one of the you could say the forefathers of the tech industry because mm -hmm. um you know without semiconductors uh and what intel has done you know tech as we know would not be the way it is and, uh, but I really wanted to work closer with consumer products. So I did the thing of apply, apply, apply. I applied to a lot of different uh, roles at Apple. Um, most wouldn't even bother you know, responding or taking a chance on me. Uh, but it, that that really didn't discourage me. Um, I even had a, a negative experience once uh, when I was in university when one of the recruiters just completely blew me off when I talked to her. Uh, and I was like, man. <laughs> I really don't want to work with this recruiter or like, you know, talk, talk her at all. Um, and, uh, but, uh, one, um, hiring manager took a chance on my CV or my resume and, um, they brought me in for interview. Um, long story short, because I knew the products in and out, um, you know, like I mentioned earlier, when I really get into weeds, it's something I really, you know, get obsessed about the details. So I knew the entire lineup in and out. Um, I, you know, could basically speak to all the trends that I expect were happening in the, um, the, you know, the Mac and iPad space. And so they took me in, uh, they gave me a, a role and, uh, took a chance on me. So, you know, yeah. it's, yeah. So the journey there, uh, you know, wasn't so simple as simply getting an engineering degree. And that means I get a job in Silicon Valley. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. it, it really, I think 
if I never took the knife selling job, I probably wouldn't get to where I am today. I'd probably be working at some, I don't know, small, uh, you know, tech company. I'm trying to see which tech company I can mention, but I don't want to offend. Um, <laughs> you know, some random semiconductor company that no one's ever heard of or something. You know, that's probably where mm -hmm. I'd be stuck at right now. Um, but, um, yeah, it, it's all taking, you know, the, the, the hand that was dealt at, at mm -hmm. that time and trying to make the best out of it. Uh, and, uh, you know, it, life always, um, you know, doesn't come easy. For some people, it comes very easy. You know, the opportunities are just given to them um, because of birthright or something. But mm -hmm. I mean, th this is what embodies America, right? It's the mm -hmm. fact that, hey, it, even if you come with no, you know, um, background, no class or anything, if you work your butt off, you can get yourself to, you know, the, the stage that you're at. Um, it's not going to be easy. And it's not like a Thing that you don't have to work for it you really have to hustle for it so you know when i when i see people complain oh you know i'm working uh 30 hours a week why how come i'm not getting to you know where i want to be you know um uh you know contrast that with the, the experience i had where essentially i had to sleep in my car because i was so tired uh working tirelessly just to you know uh, make it to my next sales appointment um you know th that's the kind of hustle that i i think uh, I expect someone to want to put in uh, if they do want to achieve this American dream, right? Or even to just, you know, uh, make their situation better. No, it's, it's, it's this grit and hustle that I really respect when I meet someone, um, yeah, in that kind of situation. I really appreciate, you know, Bobby, what you just shared because really on the surface or just looking at your resume, you're like, oh my God, this person is perfect. He probably so lucky, get a job, boom, 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 boom. And just like so forward, so natural, but yeah, Knowing the story behind it, saying knowing how many no's you have to take to get a yes from that mindset, from the mentality, and really knowing what you want and go after it until you get a yes. And I think that is a true story behind that. You touched on this before. You talk about 5% of people say no regardless. So in your mind, almost like the one person say no, you're going to have 19 yes on the way, right? Were you always in that mindset or in the beginning of the nice selling process, was it hard to get, or was it hard to digest those no's? So for me, um, my first few sales appointments were with people I already knew. So this would be like family, um, mm -hmm. friends of friends, families, and so on and so forth. So it'd be like my best friend's mom. It would be mm -hmm. like, uh, you know, my kind of friend's mom or dad. Um, and so I got rejection from people that, you know, I thought would support me <laughs> no matter what, right? So I was like, surely these people buy something, right? I mean, they, they, they love me, maybe. And so, um, you know, getting rejections from them at the beginning was very challenging because you, know, you almost take it personally. Um, yeah. But uh, looking at it reflectively, uh, I probably just wasn't doing a good job. You know, I didn't, I didn't, I, maybe I was trying to sell them too much on, you know, why they should buy from me rather than, you know, buy the product itself, what the product can do for them. And now I look at it reflectively, you know, the more rational things thinking, how does this actually value, um, you know, bring value to someone, you know, if someone's doing the back of napkin head of or back of napkin calculation of thinking, okay, if this costs me a thousand bucks, how many times I'm gonna buy in my lifetime, you know, what's the RRI of that, um, mm. you know, then that that makes a quick rational thought of, okay, it's actually really worth it to buy this product. But if I try to sell as, hey, this is the best in class, and you get to buy it from me, that doesn't always, you know, sell as a compelling argument for some people, right? Some people have uh, what Oren Klaff calls a alligator brain, 
um, where you know they get they get more soul on emotions. Some people have more the logical brain where uh, you know they want the the numbers to work out, right? And some people simply just think it's too expensive, um, and it's because they never bought a luxury good or um, you know a, an essential good the truest form before. So uh, back to your question about you know what's the hardest thing was you know getting rejection from people that you thought would definitely um, support you. I think that's that's very hard. Uh, you know, there's an old saying like I think it was like a prophet can never preach in their own town or something. Um, and, mm-hmm. and it's kind of like that where, you know, you, you know, these people, so you, you take the rejections even harder. Mm-hmm. Um, and whereas you get rejections from people you don't know, it feels a lot you know easier, uh, right? You're like, oh, that's fine. Um, but, you know, looking at it in everyday life, if someone gets rejected, let's say, um, I don't know how the dating scene works nowadays, but let's say, you know, they're at a bar, they talk to a stranger and they get rejected. What, what you know, whether they take it more personally or less personally than if it was someone that they actually knew. Right. Um, and it's, it's kind of thing, you know, uh, no matter how many no's you get, all it takes is one yes to completely change mm-hmm. the mindset. Um, and I think the hardest part is getting your first yes. Uh, similar mm-hmm. to when you're fundraising as um, an entrepreneur, Mm-hmm. All it takes is one, uh, you know, investor to take a chance on you to completely change the game. Um, and uh, for for some people, it's just getting to that point that's the hardest. Um, and it's a matter of meeting the right people uh, who can see the value in either you, the company, your product, and so on and so forth. That uh, mm-hmm. you know makes all the difference. Um, it, and you know, there's also a thing of fear of missing out. Um, so. Mm-hmm. You know, the way I also saw it was if someone rejected me for anything, um, what I, how I framed it then in my mind, um, this is when I actually got good at sales was, you know, they're just missing out. And this is something that, you know, they're going to have to live with is, you know, someone who, for example, missed out on buying Apple when it was like 10 bucks. This is, you know, how I was treating it as like, hey, you know, it's their fault. And then they're going to look back, they're going to live a life uh, unfulfilled or unenriched. <laughs> Uh, and you know it's their fault i mean not mine i try to do my best to you know change their mind but yeah so so that's how it's frame it is in, in terms of handling rejection is you know as long as you're doing something that you know and you wholeheartedly believe will make their life better mm-hmm. if they turn you down i mean that's their fault really um mm-hmm. and, and it's not on you uh for them you know uh, want to live a mediocre life with whatever product they're using <laughs> Well, if you put it that way, that makes so much sense. <laughs> so now I want to pivot our conversation, right? So now in this point of life, you master the uh, sales and you go, you know, from one Intel to Apple, your dream businesses. And at this point, uh, Bobby, is this everything you ever wanted it? Or deep down, do you always know you want to be an entrepreneur like you were? It's, it's one of those things where, you know, once you're in the headquarters, you're like, oh, I, I made it. You know, mm-hmm. this is a, the biggest company in the world, the most innovative, the most valuable brand. Um, you know, the 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 logo that you proudly wear on your T-shirt company. Um, and uh, I, I think it's it's great if you uh, if you want the security and you want to work on something that you you know are proud proud of. Um, and it, you know, even to this day, I still I still use exclusively apple products um you know just like i exclusively use those uh, knives that i was selling because you know i i have product conviction right i 
I wouldn't stay, you know, around um, for uh, for all that time, all those hours I put into Wait, Apple if I didn't truly believe in the products. You, you still use the knife that you sell, like back in college? Yeah, yeah. So, um, so for context, these knives, uh, I don't want to go into a big knife spiel, but essentially they're guaranteed for forever, um, which means if you ever need sharpening, they just um, sharpen for free. If you break anything, they just replace it. Uh, and so uh, I have an entire 24-piece um, set. Um, uh, half of it I won through different sales contests. Um, and the other half, I just, you know, bought extra because I really like, um, you know, the products. I give it away as a wedding gift as well when I meet people, <laughs> but, or not meet people, but when I, uh, visit, when I go to weddings, uh, this is what I give people. Cause I'm like, you know, you're either going to get crap that you're going to throw away after a year, or you're going to have this, um, gift that you're going to be like, oh yeah, that was the thing that Bobby gave me. <laughs> so, wow. um, yeah, so sorry. Where were we? Um, uh, Apple, uh, knives, um, <laughs> So yeah, I, 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 when I dive deep into something and fully commit to it, I have to really believe in the product um, and what the product is doing. That that also impacts your life fulfillment. Um, in terms of how it, or how I wanted to, you know, go into doing, uh, you know, my own thing. Part of you know the comfort is, you know, it's very nice. You have good, great healthcare. Um, the Apple Medical Center is world class and amazing. It's, it was right across the street from um, the office I was sitting in. So if I needed any, uh, you know, healthcare, it was right there. Uh, but you know, going back to where I was at a young age, where you know I, I took business, basically, you know, I created a little tiny mini businesses, right? And mm-hmm. um, I, I found something exciting. Uh, and it, you know, what I really enjoyed about those type of roles was, or those type of you know, passions was I get to see the direct output of what I'm doing and you see the direct impact, uh, no matter, you know, how much or how senior I could get at Apple, um, you know, you're, you're still, uh, you know, part of a much bigger effort. Right. And so, you know, I can't say, Hey, I grew the market cap by 1.5 trillion. Um, you know, that would be pretty, pretty audacious. Um, you know, you're, you're, at the end of the day, like each employee is a, a small con- contribution to the larger effort. Um, and what I really uh, enjoy is being able to see, hey, if I did something, is that going to result in a positive or negative, uh, you know, result? And you know, when I was working in sales, you can see that right away. If I did a bad delivery, you know, I wouldn't get a sell. Uh, if I did a pretty good one or a decent one at least, you know, I could see the direct results coming to my bank, right? And so uh, I, I found that quite exciting because I like to. Um, be reflective and evaluate how I'm doing myself. Um, and, and so that's kind of the, the, the itch that was always um, there in the back of my mind. Um, I, I think the way I mapped out was I would get into a position of financial stability so that I can take a risk and go into the startup space. Uh, and after, I can't remember how long, but essentially I left Apple at the time when uh, the stock was kind of at the, at the peak for that time period. Um, also left Amazon around the time that, uh, the, the peak of that stock for that time period and the COVID hit that completely changed the entire, you know, landscape of, um, stock valuation. But, uh, for me, I think, you know, I got to the point where I thought, Hey, if I take a risk now, um, you know, it, it's a low, uh, low risk, um, to take as well, because I did set a good buffer for myself. Um, and I wanted to be able to have that freedom to not, um, you know, worry about you know, putting food on the table 
um, before I took the chance. Um, some people do this a lot earlier. Some people do it straight out of college, and you know, they might be in a much further ahead um, situation. I essentially hedge my risk a bit by um, having essentially this this one one thing about you know working in a big company is you know you have this um, this floor you can always set for yourself. So if you did want to go back to the corporate life, you know you can always go back. Um, and the second part is establishing a bit of credibility. So uh, what I've noticed is you can be a random founder from like, uh, I don't know, uh, a European country with um, you know, nothing behind you. And it's a lot harder to back a founder like that um, versus if you do come from, you know, some pretty big household names, um, it, it establishes that, um, that sense of security in the person that you're backing as well. Uh, and so I, I think, you know, that this is not like a decision that's like a the perfect you know guide to get into the startup space at all. Um, you know, some people just take the risk and you know they, they do very well straight out of university. You know, building something straight straight out of university, and um, some people take more of a hedge risk, um, like me. And some people never take the risk and they just you know like like my friends who still work at Apple and Amazon, they're just living off the golden handcuffs um, of a very uh, lucrative uh, stock uh, plan. So yeah, I would say that's. That's kind of a, what pushed me into the startup space. Um, it's the excitement of working on something at a very early stage, and then being able to work on something that uh, I think I, you know, I align with, that I believe in, that I think could make a big difference, uh, is what excites me. So now tell us, you know, now you transition from this golden handcuff to a startup thing. Is this everything you ever imagined, or how does that transition be for you? It has ups and downs. Um, not right now. Right now, it's actually been really good. Uh, but um, I'll give you some uh, some anecdotes from my prior experience. So, one startup was uh, it was an AI startup. Um, it was pretty bad, I would say. And it was like uh, you know one of the first startups I joined. Uh, and then uh, one of the other startups I joined got hit by COVID. And you know, sadly, you not know, really enjoyed working the team, but it just got wiped out by COVID. Um, and then uh, another startup uh, that I was in, uh, the biggest challenge was, um, I guess, I think we were too early or too late for funding. Um, and so it was a matter of like, okay, we already built a product out, uh, but now people want to see, hey, are you in the millions of traction, in terms of traction and whatnot? So it was like a chicken egg situation where, uh, you know, sometimes for people, it's easier to raise when you already raise a product. Um, but uh, it's, you know, it's it's more of a timing issue. Um, uh, but what I really love throughout all this, and this really resonates well right now, is no day is the same. And what that means is, for example, in corporate life, you have weekly deliverables, monthly deliverables, quarterlies, annuals, um, and you're spending time just essentially going through a lot of cyclical things. Um the products you work on are going to differ. The features you work on are going to differ. Uh, and, you know, the things you're negotiating with, uh, let's say, vendors or whatnot are going to be different. But at the end of the day, it's still very, um, yeah, I think your first time around, it's it's quite exciting. It, it's fresh. It's new. But a year in, you, you slowly realize this is exactly what we were doing like a year ago. <laughs> you know, um, we just changed, you know, some numbers here and there. But uh, it becomes very monotonous in a way. Uh, and, you know, there is an argument for having this structure. Um, it's so everyone can align on, you know, how to, you know, see business performance and whatnot. But what it means is I think you spend more time doing the, uh, you know, reporting rather than, you know, 
dealing with new challenges. I, I think for consulting, um, uh, you know, the, you know, for consults, they, what they get is, um, you know, different client, different projects to work on. So it, it's, it's a lot fresher. Whereas in the corporate world, you're working on very, uh, you know, big impact things, but, uh, you know, it also comes with its, um, uh, vanilla type of flavoring as well. And so what this looks like, you know, in, um, on monthly basis would be, you know, doing your reports, uh, that you always have to do, but still trying to manage all the new products projects that you have to um, do in a startup because you don't have, you know, weekly reports or monthly reports. It's really figuring out, okay, how do we move as fast as possible? Oh, I need to jump on um, this new contract I'm writing, or we need to negotiate something with a new partner. Um, you know, how do we make a business case for this? Uh, you know, we got to pitch the investors. We got to, um, you know, figure out what we're, uh, you know, pitching and uh, what are the, the new wireframes we have for features. So it's constantly different every single day and our challenges are very different. So, you know, I think I, I have to play many hats, um, you know, uh, officially, you know, I, I, you know, uh, developed a product, but I'd say I also wear uh, on a day-to-day -day basis, you know, my co-founder and I will split like HR, uh, CFO duties, um, operations. Uh, I'll go in and debug uh, because, you know, that there's someone that has to do that. Um, you know, I had to t teach myself JavaScript in the past um, three months just to basically help out with um, the, the engineering side. So there's a lot of different new challenges constantly happening. So what it means is if you're like me and you get bored easily, you never get bored because no day is ever the same. Um, we're constantly evolving. Uh, you know, we, we're bringing on new team members. We're dealing with new challenges every single day. And I think this kind of thing, you don't really get uh, even in a new organization within the big company. So, you know, to some people, this is actually really, um, I guess you could say challenging and, uh, you know, disheartening because it means they don't know what to expect around the corner. Mm -hmm. uh, for me, I actually like the fact that I can't just anticipate, um, mm -hmm. you know, something that's a quarter out, you know, because something's going to change. We're going to get new, you know, features or product feedback, and it's going to change how we uh, develop our next month ahead. And I think that part is very exciting because you're not just playing the same um, movie over and over again. Uh, you're actually just, you know, dealing dealing with a completely different genre of subject uh, every single day, every single hour. Something might just change uh, frantically, but um, you know, I think I think there's a it's a lot more enjoyable for someone who likes ambiguity. It seems that Bobby, you're so passionate about it. And this is perfect. Right in your alley. I'm really excited for you. So now, you know, tell us a little bit about, about Mana, about what you are building. It's been four months. It's been a really exciting journey, right? What are you building today? And what are you hoping to accomplish in the future? Yeah, so we just um, rolled out our beta about two or so weeks ago. So right now we've hand-selected about 400 creators to come on the platform. Um, and these are people from very cool backgrounds. We have, you know, um, MD of YouTube, uh, you know, um, VP at all the big tech companies, um, you know, people from Bain, McKin McKinsey, BCG, so on and so forth. So it's like a who's who of everyone from tech, uh, finance, consulting, law. Um, and what, we, what we're trying to create is a place for these people to one, be, you know, reachable resources so if you want to learn you know let's say how to break into consulting from some of these people you can 
um, if some of them are teaching things on, you know, how to do, you know, uh, how to build a better resume, um, giving uh, career advice or marriage coaching, um, you know, they're not just simply pigeonholed into doing what their resume says about them. Uh, what we quickly realize is a lot of people on the platform are what we call multi-hyphenates. And this means, hey, I am a, uh, you know, MD at a consulting firm, but I also am uh, passionate about teaching people how to train dogs. And so what we realized quickly is, yeah, we have people from really, you know, highly credentialed backgrounds. Um, these are very unlikely to be spammers because of just, you know, how, how high profile they are. But they generally want to, one, give back um, and, you know, share their skills with other people. Um, but they also have something that they're passionate about that they haven't had the opportunity to share uh, anywhere else. Um, you can't go on LinkedIn and say, hey, I want to train dogs. Come to me for dog <laughs> advice. Uh, I think, you know, all we see on LinkedIn nowadays are recruiter fairy tales about someone arriving late and then they give them a chance. Like that, that's literally what my LinkedIn feed now is all day. It, or, or they're reposting someone else's like, you know, feel good story in order to get likes. Um, so, you know, I have my own thoughts about <laughs> how LinkedIn is not a great place about uh, for this. But um, so in terms of uh, where we are now, you know, people can come on the platform, they can see who's on the platform, book one-to-one uh, -one sessions with them. We're launching a, a couple of new features in this next couple uh, weeks as well. Um, so those will be rolled out slowly to our beta users. Um, it's it's, uh, it's a, an invite-only beta, which means, um, you know, creators get fully vetted uh, before they come on board. Um, that way we don't get into trouble of, you know, having a bunch of spammers. Um, like you see, if you log on to, let's say Clubhouse and you go on and it's like people just self-promoting and talking about how to get rich quick. Uh, you know, that, that's kind of the platform that we want to avoid being. Uh, you know, we really want to be a place where you get legitimate knowledge sharing, mm -hmm. where you can kind of trust everyone that you're learning from, no matter what walks life they are from. Mm -hmm. um, and so if it is, let's say an ex-banker who has become a full-time magician, um, you know, it's a lot better than just someone that's just trying to do a quick clickbait of how to do a card trick on YouTube. Um, and, you know, if you wanted to learn from this person because you simply are invested in their life story, you know, you mm -hmm. can as well. So, mm -hmm. yeah, that, that's that's where we're on in the product. Uh, we will be launching, uh, you know, a lot of other cool features that uh, I won't go too deep into uh, yet. Um, it, it's I like the uh, Apple surprise and delight fact here. Um, and, you know, I hope to keep that in our DNA as well. But uh, that's kind of where, uh, where we're going. So right now, two weeks in, I got our closed beta. We've had a couple of uh, paid bookings as well. So people are um, paying to book one-to-one uh, -one sessions with some creators. And yeah, there's a lot more to come. Well, congratulations, Bobby. A lot of hard work. And I see now I see how, you know, your guys' vision truly coming to fruition. That's really, 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 oh my God, amazing. So congrats. You know, Bobby, as, I, as you're speaking, I'm thinking about, you know, the short uh, 20 or so minutes you shared about your life journey. I'm thinking about how there are so many no's, there are so many quote-unquote could be perceived as a failure, whether it's when you sell a knife or if, when you transition from corporate to a startup. Sounds like Mona is not your first startup, right? They are One is not doing well because COVID, so on and so forth. How do you always keep such an optimist and how do you never let the failure kind of define who you are internally at least how do you get over that oh that's a tough one um you know I, I think it has gotten a lot easier because of my sales experience um it used to hit me a lot harder uh so for context like uh i was absolutely terrible when it came to um just 
talking to girls, <laughs> for example, in high school. Uh, I didn't have a girlfriend until I was, uh, I think, 19, 20. Um, and, and so, you know, I was absolutely terrible because, you know, it, it hit me so emotionally uh, to get rejection. Um, but I think working in sales has, you know, um, I don't want to say toughen my skin, but, uh, you know, built more self-confidence. Um, and so what that means is, you know, if, if you truly believe in, in something that, you know, you're building, that you're working on, it doesn't really matter what other people think of it. Um, and that's something that I really had to uh, own and, um, uh, you know, hold true to myself uh, throughout this journey, you know, and I'll go a little bit deeper into that. What that means is, you know, through all these failures, what I really want out of this experience is to work on something that I, you know, in 50 years time won't look back on and think, oh, I just wasted my time. And I think that's the hardest part to get right is knowing, did I invest my time appropriately when I was alive? So, you know, I'm getting really deep now, but you know, when, when you're, let's say 80 years old, 90 years old, and you look back at, you know, time you spent at a big tech company or at a startup, um, you know, was that time wisely invested? I think that's the key thing that I, in terms of uh, having FOMO in life, um, you know, to neglect FOMO is to making, just to make sure, you know, yes, I got a rejection or failure, mm -hmm. but did that lead me to learn something throughout that experience? Uh, was that the right experience to actually get me to, um, you know, where I ended up being? Um, and so was it a worthwhile investment at the end of the day? And, and so, uh, yeah, I, I think that's how I kind of uh, bridged the, the gap of failure is seeing how it fits into the big picture. You know, um, does your failure offer you the learnings that you need so that you can become a much, uh, you know, not stronger person out of it, but you actually know, like, you know, how to... Uh, handle these situations in the future. Um, I'll give an analogy to stock trading. You know, some people say the more money you lose, um, the more you get educated <laughs> on how the market works. Um, you know, hopefully that's true for some people. Um, hopefully, you know, yeah, it works out. But it, it's, it's those things is if, if you learn from losing, mm -hmm. um, then it's you're paying for education, if you will. And so, you know, I learned from the rejection. I learned from failure. And, you know, throughout of it, that through that experience, I, you know, figured out, okay, this is how I overcome it in the next obstacle that comes ahead. Um, if, and what it also teaches me is if I face something I haven't faced before, you know, how to, how to use my prior experience to um, better handle those uh, hurdles that come up. So I think through failure, um, you know, it teaches you how to manage situations that you haven't seen before or similar situations that come up. It's almost a requirement to do well. Um, if an entrepreneur, a successful entrepreneur says, you know, I got here by sheer luck, uh, I think that's way more rare than, you know, someone who has failed tremendously to get to where they are. Um, you know, I, I think social media and all these platforms uh, really glorify the success stories. Mm -hmm. But what's really buried sometimes underneath is all the failures that were required to get to that mm -hmm. point. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I think... Sometimes there are social constructs that don't allow for failure. So, um, you know, in some countries, you fail and there's no way to get back up, right? But uh, going back to what we discussed at the beginning, what what, uh, what it means to kind of be American, it's the idea that, you know, you can fail, um, but you can also have uh, the ability to bootstrap yourself back up um, as long as you have the mentality and motivation to do so. Uh, 
and the grit to overcome, you know, what life has dealt you. Back to what you were saying earlier about if you were 80 years old, looking back to see whether your time has been well spent. Now I'm asking you, Bobby, if you were to 80 years old, what do you want to accomplish? What do you like to looking back? What kind of world you want to create and what kind of impact will you be proud to say you're part of it? This is kind of like a personal connection too, but just, you know, looking back at my life, uh, I, there are some key moments and p- key people that I interacted with that really shaped who I am today. And so for, for one example, it would be my English teacher in high school. Uh, you know, when all the counselors would tell me, oh, you know, you're probably not fit for going to a good university. You're probably better off doing like a local college or something or community college. Um, yeah, this English teacher really took a, a bet on me and she really put in the effort uh, to develop me. Uh, that I think was a very um, needed factor to give me the drive to actually, you know, uh, pass, you know, I think I passed like a so between 11 or 13 AP exams, because I just basically put in the extra effort <laughs> um, that, uh, you know, someone normally wouldn't put that effort into, uh, because I, I realized, hey, you know, this person's, you know, believing me, they, they're telling me I can do it. And, you know, I'm, I'm going to work my butt off to get to that point. Um, but uh, what that means is, you know, not everyone has the opportunity to have these type of influential moments in their life, right? What if we can expand that, uh, you know, make that a possibility in the world? And so, you know, what if someone who is in a small town who has no resource to inspirational people just, you know, is able to access this wide network of people that, you know, really want to give back, inspire young people, give them like exactly what they need to know or what they need to hear in order to push themselves up and prop themselves up. Uh, And, and, you know, that's what I think will really make the difference. Um, you know, it, it's sometimes a very undervalued trait is just, you know, one simple sentence that someone can say in a fleeting moment to someone else that changes their life. Uh, what I want to create is like a lot more of those moments because sometimes, you know, a young person, you know, has a very pivotal moment in their life and all they need to hear is the right thing from one other individual to completely change the direction of their life. And, uh, yeah, for me, if I create something that allows a lot more of those opportunities to occur, mm-hmm. um, I think... Yeah, I think then I've made that positive impact, right? Um, and the second part is allowing people to pursue something that they're actually passionate about. So uh, now this is going back to, you know, um, who I am. So I've done a lot of random things, you know, <laughs> whether it be sales, uh, you, know, uh, you know, managing a portfolio or uh, acting. Um, what I don't enjoy doing is the same thing over and over again. Uh, I think that contradicts who I am as a person. Um, and so, you know, having... Uh, you know, building something that allows other people to have my experience of being able to pursue passions while still, you know, affording everyday life things. I think that's something uh, that I think will be, uh, you know, really empowering. Um, And then for some people, it'd be, hey, you know, they are struggling in their full-time job, but they also have no means to pursue their passions because there's no way to you know, pay for things. Um, so for example, if someone uh, is making minimum wage, but there's no platform unless they buy followers to, you know, make a living on YouTube to share, you know, their music skills, there's, there's basically no way to one for them to pursue that passion and two for the world to see what they're working on. And so looking back at this phase of my life, if I get to build something that allows people to meet those inspirational people that change their lives, also pursue the passions that you know all the gifts that they were given uh and be able to share that with the world i think i think yeah that's a really cool tick tock tick box in my mind um 
to be able to do that is, is you know to, to basically uplift someone who uh you know might be in the trenches who don't have other ways to you know break out of their traditional mold you know they might be stuck in a nine to five job or if they're you know lucky to be in a nine to five job and there's no other way out but mm-hmm. if this person is really gifted at something and they really you know um should be valued uh for their gifts uh you know that's where I really hope you know, I can create it's some, somewhere where someone can share their talents with the world, um, you know, make a living off of it uh, while enjoy doing it as well. Wow, Bobby, that is really beautiful. And thank you for sharing. So today, my last question for you is, you know, speaking of people who may be in the trenches, thinking about whether it's entrepreneur or inspiring entrepreneurs right now, kind of really wanted to follow someone like yourself and really, you know, breaking through that startup scenes. What advice, what insight you would share with her or him who really right now still have so many no's and have not yet got yeses? Yeah, um, so there's there's two layers. So one is, I think, people who just want to like join the startup scene. Um, what I recommend is, you know, really meeting the, the founders, the, the team, um, because I, I think... There are plenty of roles in the startup scene. If you go on AngelList, uh, you know you can find a job at a startup um, or a job post. But finding the right one is really important, and that's something that you know comes through trial and error. Yeah, uh, I, I think doing proper vetting of the company, the product you're working on, the technology, uh, if there is technology. <laughs> you know, I think I think in the startup scene, what I've seen is there's a lot of uh, companies that are slideware as well, which means there's no tech, but it's just like a good story. <laughs> and, and so uh, I recommend someone who's, you know, coming from you know traditional background and want to jump in the startup scene to do proper due diligence uh, because that's time you're not going to get back. If you're spending, you know, three to six to, you know, 12 months at a minimum, sometimes um, at these places, you know, fully, you know, spend some extra time um, vetting things out before you join. Uh, and then the second part about just you know diving cold in the startup scene would be, I, I think, having that comfort zone of, you know, knowing hey, is this if I were to invest like six to twelve months of my life into this, um, do I have the financial stability to do so? It is a very risky gamble, right? And for a lot of people, this might not be the right, you know, time or place in their life to do so. And for some people, you know, it might be the perfect time. Um, so. Uh, doing that evaluation and then going into it thinking, you know, if I were to pitch my product, um, you know, gut checking that with, is there an actual need in the market for whatever it is I'm trying to build or whatever it is I'm doing? Um, So it's really focusing on, is there a customer out there to actually find what I'm doing valuable? So simply just saying, hey, I'm going to create my own startup that's going to, you know, make uh, these widgets. I, I think that's not enough to want to jump in startup scene. Um, doing some validation of seeing, hey, are there people who actually benefit from using this? Um, you you might be someone who creates Excel macros and you're selling those. That might actually create more or have more demand than someone who's just creating widgets for the sake of creating widgets, right? If someone wants to be a clothes designer, um, you know, really testing that out on something that is low risk, like let's say Etsy or um, some other marketplace to you know establish your brand, so you can test what works and doesn't work. Uh, might be the low risk option versus just jumping straight cold into it. I would recommend uh, going remote if possible and not wor- worrying about renting an office. I think one trap in startup space is people get a bunch of VC money and then they think, okay, let's just spend, spend, spend. Let's just uh, you know 
get fancy chairs and offices. I, I think going some, I think my time at Amazon really put this uh, mindset of frugality <laughs> in my head. So, you know, I'll get promo codes on even, uh, even to save like five bucks on a SaaS platform because, you know, in my mind, okay, that's five bucks that we can invest in some other thing that we really need to. Uh, and, you know, at the end of the day, when you're trying to raise another round, if you have a much cleaner book <laughs> of uh, financials, you know, in terms of just your cash outflows, that's going to make a much stronger, compelling investable option versus uh, startups as spending twenty grand on a WeWork or something. Um, so, uh, you know, if if someone's not funded, taking the lower risk options, um, looking for the two door or two way doors. Um, uh, in terms of you know how they invest their money, where they get locked into no long term lease um, agreements or anything like that. And then if you do get money in the bank, then investing that wisely. You know, people aren't just giving you money to uh, play with. I mean, it, yeah, you can pay yourself a salary, but um, you know, if you're just paying yourself a low salary for the sake of wasting your own time, um, when you look back, you know, uh, at your life when you're 80 years old, do you wish you could have just you know done a, done something else with your time? Uh, I think, um, yeah, th this comes down to you know, yeah, yes, you can get paid, yes, you can pursue your your side project, but is it actually a good worthwhile investment for time? Uh, I think that also comes into play as well, and that goes beyond you know a money topic at the end mm -hmm. of the day. Wow. Well, thank you so much, Bobby. That's such a wonderful insight, and I love that. I feel like every decision you are making, you're always thinking about that 80 years of Bobby, what he will say, and I love that. Um, just you're so grounded, so true to who you really are and your value and really want to make sure every decision you make in the right alignment. And that really come across with your passion, with every single product you're part of. And I'm just so excited. And really, thank you so much, Bobby, for today, you know, taking your time and sharing inside with all of us. And thank you, everybody, for tuning in today. We so, so appreciate you. And I hope you enjoy the show. We cannot wait to see you guys next week. Bye, guys.